Welcome to K-Pod, the podcast about Korean Americans and arts and culture from Korean American Story. The episode you're about to hear is our conversation with the one and only Margaret Cho. Ever since Juliana and I started doing this podcast, Margaret has been pretty much at the top of our list. In 1994, she became hands down the most famous Korean person in the country with her sitcom All-American Girl. That show, over which Cho had no creative control, only lasted 19 episodes and was critically panned. After its cancellation, Cho fell into a spiral of depression and drug addiction, an experience she channeled into her groundbreaking one-woman show, I'm the One That I Want, in 1999. In the years since, she's built a fervent following for her body and confessional material targeting racism, homophobia, fat shaming, the entertainment industry, and of course herself, and also her mother. Margaret has a very demanding touring schedule, but because of the pandemic, she's been at home in Los Angeles, which is where Juliana and I were finally able to connect with her. We loved hearing about her childhood, her coming of age, her dog, her championing of the LGBTQ community, her recent experience on the reality show as a masked singer, and her favorite Korean dramas. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much, Margaret, for doing the podcast. Thank you. This is great. Can you tell us where you are and just give us a little bit of a visual setup? I'm in my home in uh, Los Angeles. Um, I moved my furniture around. So we're in front of uh, my piano, which um, I haven't been playing very much, although I have been playing um, since I was a child. I'm like most Korean American kids. Mm -hmm. We got mm -hmm. to play piano. You know, uh, we all sort of have um, that sort of like Korean um, upbringing. Well, my generation we had seven days of school because you had school every day. And then, of course, you had Korean school on Saturday yes. um, and then Sunday school on Sunday. And then but you also had after school, you had uh, piano lessons and probably some kind of either Kumon or some older Korean male <laughs> coming over to tutor you in something. Um, and so that there was like a lot of schooling. But I and I, I think that because of that, I always want to go to like some kind of Korean school or math school or piano school. I can't do something without schooling. Well, I couldn't I couldn't get away from that fast enough. I always walked out of there like I don't I don't even know what what I was doing there. I didn't learn anything and I had to go every week and it was always the same. It's like collective <laughs> trauma of yeah. Sunday yeah. Saturday yeah. schools. <laughs> it's so frustrating yeah. because I think it it may have been because I realize now it was because they were working all the time and they kind of didn't know what to do with me. So I think that it was maybe the guilt of not being able to spend time with their kids. That's why they were putting us in school. I thought it was just like punishment or torture, but it was really out of a kind of a guilt of having to work. Margaret, I are you an only think. child? No, no. I have a brother who he is um, five years younger than me. And um, so he had a pretty different, I think boys and girls have different experiences Mostly because of, you know, just the, the the way that we're treated is differently growing up. But also my parents were in a very different financial situation because um, he came along when they were like able to buy a house. They were financially mm -hmm. much more secure. Mm -hmm. They had uh, citizenship. So they had like a lot of different. He, so he had a lot of different advantages um, that they didn't have when I because when I was uh, when I was born. 
gotten deported. There was all these sort of traumas that happened. And so I had sort of absorbed a lot of that in my upbringing. And so we had a different experience of childhood. So he didn't have, he had to go to like, um, he had the sort of different thing where he had the, he had to go to like Camp Conifer, which is a whole nother kind of trauma, which is when they were like kind of trying to return to the Koreanness. Like he had a real Americanization of um, his Koreanness. Like he was trying to, they were trying to return to being Korean, whereas we had sort of the more educational, upbringing, I think. The kids were my age, I think. That was more our experience. Margaret, you have a very different Korean-American story than a lot of other Korean-Americans that I've met in my life. First of all, what I was so interested was the fact that your parents actually did own a bookstore and it was a gay bookstore. Because when you had your show, I thought that was just invented for the show because it was a great setting. I don't even know any Koreans of my parents' generation that had a bookstore, you know, liquor store, deli, dry cleaner. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about how that even came about? I think that my parents were oddly, um, like, rebellious in their own way, like as much as they could be, you know. Um, my uh, grandfather um, was the minister of Kamnigyohe in San Francisco, which was the big church on Powell Street in uh, Chinatown. So that was sort of a central location for a lot of um, Korean immigrants in the 60s and 70s. And then in the 70s, somebody stole the K, which is the big. Oh, um, my, oh my gosh. God. So in like 1977, somebody stole the K, which is the big Korean banking system that everybody pulls their money into. And um, so at that time, there was a huge scandal and nobody wanted to go to that church anymore. So at that point, that was sort of this jumping off point where everybody decided to kind of go their own way. All of the immigrants kind of were like, oh, we're just going to do our own thing because everybody in this community obviously doesn't care about the other Koreans. So my parents decided to take their money and invest in something different. And my dad had always had these kinds of ideas about having a bookstore like City Lights, which is the big mm-hmm. beatnik bookstore in San Francisco. So one bookstore came up for sale, which is called Paperback Traffic, which is a gay bookstore in San Francisco. And he bought it. And um, he uh, really enjoyed having this business there for about 15 years. He really loved the community there. It was a fun time. I mean, there was um, a lot of amazing people that I got to meet and a lot of amazing experiences that we had. But it was a strange thing. This Because Koreans, I think, especially that generation, Koreans are naturally very conservative. There's this idea that gayness somehow doesn't exist. Even in Korea now, you know, (laughs) they have... It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. We don't have gays. No, (laughs) they do have a gay pride, but the, the people wear masks. I mean, not even during the corona thing, but they wear masks. People are not out, really. You know, I know a lot of gay people that are not out, um, Mm -hmm. that that can't be out in any way. People are very, very conservative about that still in this day of time. And, you know, it's still very strange. So I think having somebody steal the gay was a very kind of pivotal thing. It's a strange thing when somebody betrays the trust of a community like that. So your family must have been super established in San Francisco, right? When you have the grandfather who's the head of the church, they know Mm -hmm. everybody. 
Yes. And so everyone knew you because you're the granddaughter. But it was kind of like um, I was also pretty rebellious myself and not very into, you know, like I kind of was so. You can pick up the dog. Can we see your dog? She's we can like hear. facing. She's facing me. So she doesn't want to be a part of it. Does she? She doesn't want to get on she's camera. Oh, she doesn't. Oh. Hi. She's very anti. She hates streaming. She hates streaming. She hates Instagram. She's well, her, so her little tail was on Instagram recently. Her little butt yes, tail. Her yeah. little butt tail. She hates, she hates the internet. She's really anti. She's really She's trying to keep you real, Margaret. She's, she's trying to keep it real. She hates any of this. Um, no, but I think I was so reje- like rejected any kind of, I think I went to school too much. Like I went to too mm. much, I like was so entrenched in it that I really, by the time I was a teenager, like I really rebelled. Like I was, by the time it was like the eighties hit, I was like, I'm sick of this. Like, like I don't want to do this had, anymore. I've had enough. You're out. Yeah. I yeah. didn't want to do it anymore. Like I kind of, I got um, sick of it. This is like the eighties. I put like sun in my hair and I got that crazy, like, orange weird hair that you know like oh we think we went on a vacation in Hawaii and I put like sun in and like lemon juice in my hair (laughs) and it went all orange and I just went crazy and like I'm not gonna go to church anymore and then it was like a big scandal (laughs) yeah well you know so many people um feel that uh, you know I've had enough you know uh, I can't do this anymore but Mm -hmm. um very few people actually break out and um get in you were financially independent from your parents. You dropped out of high school. I, yeah. I mean, this is not something a typical Koreans, no matter how rebellious um, that they ever do. Right. That was really scandal. I mean, it was scandalous, but also kind of, I don't know. I think it was also something that I'm glad I did it. It, it was hard, but also at the same time, I don't think I had a choice because it was so um, important for me to do comedy and to do my own thing. And I was never a good student. So in a sense, it was kind of easy because I wasn't very good in school. You know, like I had gone to Lowell, but I was only able to really go for two years and I couldn't survive there because I wasn't a good student. You know, like I just couldn't survive. So then did you move out of home? And yeah, Uh, so I was living in this like weird, um, I went, I was in San Francisco, I was living this weird house that was an old, um, it was a converted convent that was across the street from a hospital on the other side of Haight Street across from the Panhandle. And it was in San Francisco. And this is like in the 80s. It was $125 a month. Can you imagine? And it was a, it was a, converted like Victorian and it was an apartment, but it was $125. But how like, old were you when you moved there? I was probably about 17. That's young. Yeah. Young. And, um, I lived there and I lived in a couple of different situations. Like I had, had like, fr- I lived with friends. I lived in, um, different types of 
places. I also moved around a lot. I was doing stand-up comedy and traveling. So that's so fascinating, Margaret, because I feel like your parents came around pretty easily compared, like, if I tried to pull something like that, I think they would have physically restrained me. Yeah. I think you were that- able to still come home for Thanksgiving. It wasn't like you were disowned. You know, that whole thing, like you're out of the family. You're dead to us. No, but I think that because I was so independent so early on, and then the fact that I became successful so early that I was able to support myself so early on uh-huh. too, uh-huh. Um, that I was financially independent by the time I was about 18, made a big difference. And that I was also on television by the time I was about 19. Because Koreans are really all about status too, so that they could show their friends, you know, that I was doing well, (laughs) um, that they could see evidence of that my performances on television by the time I was 18, 19, you know, and in San Francisco, um, that success was very apparent very early. It made all the difference. So, oh, and it was apparent to the whole country, right? I mean, you are nationally famous. So, yeah, but most of it was I, my, my dad, um, this is so Korean. Um, he was very resistant to it, um, in my teens. And then my parents went to a mudang, and they, <laughs> the Mudang said, oh, she's going to be internationally famous in two years. We should explain for people uh, what a Mudang is. I, so a Mudang is a, a, sham, a Korean shaman, usually a woman. It's like if you ever see like in K-dramas, there's like a woman who's like dancing on top of a sword or she's got like a pig's head and like an umbrella or a bunch of bells. That's a mudang. You know, they have like a ceremonial table and there's like a bunch of like uh, food and like dried fish and they have like an old costume and they have like crazy makeup. That's a mudang. And, um, you know, it's 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 old. It's the old religions. Um, so she told your dad, don't worry, Margaret's going to be famous. Yeah. And and internationally said, cool. famous within two years. And that was the only thing that convinced him. He was like, OK, that's fine then. Because he only tried believe- to track her down. <laughs> no, <laughs> you need to try to track her down. But I it mean- was the street. It was the one that had, it wasn't even like a really famous mudang. It was the one with the street that has the tteokbokki. <laughs> it's, it's the garden like, variety neighborhood mudang. <laughs> yeah, the mudang. There's like a street. There's like I don't know if it's like you know. There's like one. Um, there's like some street in Seoul. There's like one side that has dokbokki, and then the other side has mudang. It's that one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not even like a famous like old school mudang. It's like that one. It's so strange. <laughs> You're the original Korean American. You're the one who kind of broke out early. You you were <laughs> on your own and you kind of blazed that path and you know doing research and just looking up all of your you know archive and all the things that you've done this uh, over the years. I it occurred to me that I think Korean Americans owe you an apology for not supporting you and really being there for you when you were out there on your own. And I, I don't think we were really together as a community really back then. Um, and we are, we've really come together more, much more as a community that supports and celebrates other Korean Americans, um, and celebrates differences a lot more now. But when you were out there, um, I feel like everyone was just really just trying to conform and fit in and we didn't come out and support you. 
I think it's hard because when you're, um, it's a difficult culture, you know, it's a difficult time to, when I first emerged as a comedian, it was also a difficult time uh, for Koreans too, because it was right after um, the uh, LA riots. So my first appearance was really shocking for a lot of um, not Korean Americans necessarily, but for Koreans who um, were in America, you know, who had sort of not necessarily even kind of um, identified as Korean Americans. You know, um, there was this sense of um, real protection over their image because the first time they had seen themselves on television really mm-hmm. was in news coverage of the riots. Yeah. And so they were extremely protective of the way that they were perceived and um, didn't want necessarily to be um, seen or heard as American or, um, you know, in that time period, like all of the signage in Koreatown was in Hangul. You didn't have a sense of Americanization in Koreatown. You also didn't have a sense of this real thing of like, we're going to stay here. Like we're going to be American. You know, I think the mentality, even amongst uh, like people in my family was, we're going to be here for a while. We're going to make money. We're going to go back. And um, so there was a thing of like, when people saw me, when Koreans saw me, there was like this, like alarm of first I was a woman first I was very much not an ideal um representation of what we would perceive as um uh not yam total kijibe total um <laughs> like that needs to be a t-shirt just loud very very large very like um americanized very uh much um you know not like this sort of uh polite kind of delicate sort of representative or um, diplomatic representative that would sort of asked for, you know, and I think that was a kind of a scary thought of like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We, we didn't, we didn't ask for this. We didn't, we didn't present this. And what do, what do we mean? Cause I think that the, when we thought of sort of like Korean American representation or Korean representation before that with comedy, it had been Johnny Yoon, who was um, a member of the Rat Pack originally. He was a friend of like Frank Sinatra's and like, Dean Martin, he played golf. He was a, he was an interesting guy. He was a comedian, but he was not um, American. He was very Korean and he would do the Tonight Show. And he was, he was a good representation because he was really like sort of very much the eternal foreigner. And he was delightful for Koreans because it was this thing of like, oh, I get that guy because he's just like, He's charming and funny, but he was total ajushi. You know, it was like this thing that they could relate to. So for me, it was like this thing of the, the people were scared. So I would get in arguments with um, Koreans. And, and I feel bad now because I also didn't understand, like, you're respectful to people who are older than you just because. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now I get that. I really understand that now. And I feel bad the way that I treated people who were trying to relate that to me or who were so alarmed that I didn't understand that when I was younger. And I would like to make that up to them now, but they're all dead. So and now that I'm the older person now, I'm yeah. like, I, I get that now because everybody that's younger than me 
all of the younger Koreans are so respectful to me now. And I feel bad because I didn't do that. Well, when you're young and you're trying to prove yourself and make your way, you're getting all kinds of mixed signals and pushback. It's very hard to keep that in mind. You were just making it. Yeah, it's a re- there's a reason why it exists, though, and it, it really resides inside you. And you're like, oh, gosh, I really missed an opportunity because there, there's a reason why you do that. When you get older, you recognize like, oh, I should have done that because now I don't feel like I deserve it. You know, like there's like something inside you that really is like, oh, God, like this is awful. Like I should have done that when I was younger. You know, that's well, so- you were especially young yeah. when you mm-hmm. hit it big. So yeah. It's yeah. interesting because yeah. I, I feel that I had that so instilled in me that it's it's reflexive for me. Like whenever mm-hmm. I see older Koreans, um, even though they speak much better English than I do, uh, I insist on only speaking Korean to them in my broken English because it's more respectful. And, uh, um, you mm-hmm. know, I'm always like I take a different tone and I'm always like, uh, you know, and it, it's because it was so ingrained in me from a young age that even if I didn't understand it or wanted to break out of it, I don't think I could. Yeah, it's something that I think I uh, rejected pretty young. I feel like I was almost like my earliest memories were speaking out of honorifics because people would laugh. Like I remember when I was in Korea and really young and after my father got deported and we were staying um, in Korea with his, uh, his harmony and she would be taking care of me and I would be speaking out of honor. I would be speaking like not mm-hmm. in honorifics to her cause I didn't know. And they would laugh like her. She would laugh because I was just, calling her no no like <laughs> like ima like to her like yeah to her and she yeah. would laugh and they would be so laughing because i would be addressing how many as yeah like yeah like and they would laugh <laughs> they would be so tickled that this like 3 year old would be saying that <laughs> so i think that i got used to that and it was so like ridiculous that it was somehow amusing to older people that that was happening. So to me, it sort of became like this thing that I just internalized was amusing. I'm curious um, about your dad's deportation. What was that about and how long? It was so traumatic, you know, like this thing where like they he just overstayed his student visa. And it's such a thing of like, it seems kind of like a harmless thing, but that really does it does happen. And it's really terrifying. You know, when you just don't go home, you like you're here for a student visa and you just don't go home. And it seems like it's like a not a big deal. And it's such a big deal. And so someone came for him at your yeah. house. And uh, I don't know this exactly. Like they never talk about the situation of what, ha- like who came or what it was. But we just left. And having to like sort of decide who goes or when and what, you know, it's something that they never really clearly discuss or talk about. But we were separate. Like, so my Father took me and my mom stayed in America. She was here for, I think, about two years by herself. And then he was there with me. And so it's a very strange period where we're sort of like not together for like, that's a very, it's a very blank, Mm -hmm. strange time that there are so many blanks in our history that uh, the family 
they, they, they don't address, they have no, no explanation for. And that's so, so true. I think of so many Korean Americans, we have so many blanks in our family history that they don't really address, that there's no stories about, there's no explanations for, that there's no, there's no talk of. For sure. There are a few specials that you have been a part of where you've partaken as a special guest or a host. And one of the um, shows that we found was The Mass Singer. So could you oh, yeah, yeah. tell us a little bit about that project and how you got involved with it? I um, was asked to do it uh, on the first season and I um, watched it. When they they sent me, I never saw it when I was in Korea, but they sent me some clips of it and it was so exciting. I was so excited to be involved in it. I love singing anyway, and um, it's a it's a big passion. And I, I really my family is a very musical family. And um, so my father plays piano and my mother is a guitarist and a singer. So they always uh, have sort of surrounded me with music my entire life. So that's an, another thing that we always do. And um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I love that we got to uh, be so involved in um, this sort of secrecy of being in uh, these different locations. And um, they would put people in the costumes that weren't the actual contestants. So you really didn't know. I, I had a great time doing it. It was fun. That's awesome. I'm curious to know how often, um, like let's say in the past 10 or 15 years, you've traveled to Korea and what that experience is like, like what are the fans like in Korea? How are you perceived? I've been there about, uh, I've only been there about three, three or four times. I really, um, I really enjoy it. I know that there's some awareness of who I am. The people who do know who I am really are the people in show business. Um, what's exciting is like, if I've gone, um, to work, like I've been there, um, I've appeared on their version of SNL. And this is where I really feel that elder experience is when I go in, all of the cast members stand up and they bow really fast. And it's really funny because it's like, these are really famous people, I think. And they're like, you know, and it's so like, it's so touching. And I really, I think it's really beautiful. Um, but I really, I really love them. Their work ethic is very intense and they work so hard and it's, it's quite, um, it's, it's challenging, you know, and, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a world that I would love to break into. Um, I'd love to go more. I think that their show business is so exciting. Um, I'm a real fan of K-dramas and all of the show business in general. You know, I think it's really imaginative and, and, and it just, I don't know, like I'm just really moved by everything they do. So I'd love to go more. Okay. So I don't, really speak Korean. So any K-drama I'd have to watch would definitely have to be subtitled. And I've never really gotten into them. So which one should I start with if I were going to watch a K-drama or two? Um, I think Itaewon Class is a really good entry point. Itaewon Class is like a great starter one because it's got, got everything. And it's also got like the new direction of where Korea is headed. Um, I think that Korea is really trying, South Korea is really trying to uh, expand its ideas about where it wants to go in terms of race and class and, um, 
you know, uh, LGBTQ rights. I think it's trying to really change its idea about who it is. And I think ETA one class is like the first step in that direction. Hmm. And I think and what's like great. an old school one that like what's like an old school one that you watched years ago that was one of your favorites, like something you you and your mom would watch together or something that she would watch. <laughs> I think replay 1988 is it's not old school, but it feels like it's 1988. We watched it in quarantine, but it was like being with my parents in Korea in 1988. Hmm. And it was like the whole time I was just like, oh, this is wrong because it's so time machine. It was really good. Wow. I've only been to Korea once in my whole life. It was in 1989. So that's OK. But they also, yeah, they also go there. It also goes to 1989, too. So it goes from 1988 <laughs> to 1989. You might be in it. <laughs> I might be the star of that whole show. You're probably in it. So, Margaret, does your mom enjoy a certain kind of celebrity because you, you know, talk about her so much, like in, within her circle of friends or in San Francisco, does she get recognized on the street? Oh, yes. She loves it, too. She <laughs> is the real star. And she's very much aware of that. And she lets it like, you know, kind of sort of makes it like her... um I think because I feel like a lot of times she has that sort of thing of like ajima invisibility. Sometimes ajimas feel really invisible. Mm -hmm. So like I think that's that's really important to make her feel seen. And um, I do think that it's really important. So, yeah, she loves it. And I think it's really good for immigrants in general, like immigrant parents to feel seen. I think the immigrant experience kind of gets like um, neglected in the American experience. And so, but it's all Americans experience. So I think it's really important to be told. I think if your mother enjoys this celebrity has had a very unusual experience, she should, um, do her own story on Korean American story. She should tell, you know, we do this video series where we just have people talking about their experiences. She would tell, she would have a lot of good stories about you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Would she love to talk about her experience raising you? I think so. I think she would be shy. I think she would make my dad do it, but then she tells him what to say. So it's kind of confusing <laughs> because she'll push him forward and then she'll stop him and tell him what to say. So yes, they would well, both do it. Well, who's the funny one? I know your dad wrote joke books, right? Yeah. But who's so I the think real, is there I, one real storyteller in the family? I think they're both pretty funny. Um, they're kind of becoming each other. So I think that they both are, uh, they're both there. They're both, they sort of become one, but I think they're both equally funny. I would love to hear what they have to say yeah. about you after all these years. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they, they would have, have a lot. their say. That would be yeah. fascinating. That would be great. And I want to ask about your fans. So you have, I think, some of the most devoted fans. I'm sure you get a ton of fan mail and messages from people telling you their stories of how you've helped them. Can you tell us about some of the more memorable interactions you've had with fans or? People have been amazing. People have been so amazing throughout every, 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 you know, experience in my career. You know, it's been phenomenal. And I, I, I mean, I'm really lucky, you know, that I've been able to connect with so many people and, you know, through social media, it's become a lot easier. There's a lot of people that I've been able to connect with and become friends with actually over time. It, it definitely feels more like 
friendships. Um, if, if you've been seeing the same people and connecting with them for like 30 plus years, it definitely is, is friendships at this point. You know, now it's like very close. So I'm really lucky. Wow. I would think I could see you developing friendships, but I feel like you have a status almost like a guru for a lot of people. They're looking to you as a beacon of inspiration because you've always embraced, let's say, misfits and people try to figure out their lives. Yeah. And I think it's nice. I think it's really hopeful. And I do definitely feel that, too, especially for for a lot of like um, Asian-American comedians and gay comedians who are um, younger and coming up and people who have definitely felt like they wanted to do this for a career and wanted to feel a sense of like, this was, the, this was a good way to go. This is like a good thing to do. And so definitely um, for people who like wanted to choose this path of like being in entertainment, especially for Asian American comedians, like that's for sure a big thing because they just were so worried that their families wouldn't accept what they were going to do with their lives. And then they could sort of show their parents. Oh, like, well, she's doing it. And they're like, okay, <laughs> you know, be able to sort of see like this is possible. So yeah, for sure. Like Aquafina, I loved how you were in her video. Yeah. Her. Yeah. She's amazing. so amazing. And uh, we actually filmed that here at my house and um, <laughs> she's so special. She's a great performer. What a talent. And She's just so incredible. And I think, um, yeah, there's so much in store for her. Would you like to share with us some current projects you're working on? We heard that you have, uh, you're working on something for Amazon. Well, I know that I'm going to be um, doing uh, podcasting. I'm going to be touring next year when we're all finished with this uh, pandemic. It's kind of this weird thing where I really haven't stopped touring for 30 something years. So it's a weird year this time being home because it made me realize I haven't stopped for so long. So stopping for this long is very shocking, but it's oddly kind of nice um, because I didn't know I hadn't been here. I actually haven't unpacked since uh, the eighties. So finally kind of unpacking (laughs) has been kind of oddly nice. So it is strange, but I mean, I I really do miss touring. I really do miss performance and I'm looking forward to going back to it. And so I will go to Korea uh, next year. I I was supposed to do it this past year, but I will go next year and um, I will go to Japan next year. I'll go to uh, Australia. Everything will happen that was supposed to happen this last year will happen next year. And in general, um, quarantine, what's your routine been like? I know you've been, the podcast keeps you quite busy because you're very rigorous every Tuesday. You really do it every week, right? Yes. Um, and I have been um, perfecting a sous vide kalbi chim. Oh, <laughs> like, right. I'm doing the, the 72-hour kalbi chim. Wow. You know, we think it, you thought it was a... The uh, uh, apples and pears, it's actually plums that uh, do uh, yeah. better in the cowboy gym. But it's all experimentation. Um, so I'm doing a lot of cooking and I'm doing a lot of cleaning and I'm doing a lot of K-dramas, which are pretty great. K-dramas are really kind of saving me during the pandemic. There's a lot of them to watch. Um, so I like right now I'm, I'm liking Mystic Pop-Up Bar. That's my latest one. Another good one was a prison 
playbook, which was really a lot of male wow. bonding, <laughs> really funny. And um, there's really a oh, hospital playlist, also very good. Um, and it's okay not to be okay as the latest. Everybody loves it. And if you want to go dark, Flower of Evil, very dark. And A Stranger 2 is out also. So very good. I have a Excellent. lot of watching to do. Yeah, there's lots of K-dramas, thank goodness, because there's lots of time. I love this list. If there was a K-drama where they only said things like, brush your teeth, do your homework, and, and stop fooling around, I would get it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's about as much they do a lot. They do a lot of that in Reply 1988, so I think you have to be good, pretty good. Kabajima! <laughs> So thank you so much, Margaret. We loved having you. Thank you. We want to thank Margaret Cho for being our guest on K-Pod. We've admired Margaret as the only Korean-American voice in entertainment for years, so it was very special for us to speak with her. The photos that accompany this episode were shot by Margaret on her phone, which I remotely directed by Zoom. They turned out remarkably well. So thank you, Margaret, for partaking in our COVID photo shoot. If you want to check out Margaret's K-drama recommendations, you can find them in our show notes. You can find her on Instagram at Margaret underscore Cho, and her podcast is The Margaret Cho. Please follow K-Pod on Instagram at K-Pod Our editor is AJ Valente. Our producer is Jessica Park, and our executive producer is H.J. Lee.